we have a special treat. We have best-selling author Anna Belfrage. Uh, in real life, Anna is a financial professional, but she'd much rather be a time traveller. Anna is the author of several fabulous series, including the Graham Saga, time-travelling series set in the 17th century Scotland and Maryland. She also wrote the King's Greatest Enemy series, set during the downfall of Edward II, which is absolutely fabulous and is now three books into the Castilian saga, where the spotlight is turned on the reign of Edward I. Anna writes those kind of books that have you staying up until 2am just to find out what happens next, and that you tend to read in two or three days but get nothing else done. One of those writers who you just fall in love with when you're reading, and one of my friends messaged me the other day to say that she's reading the Graham saga and absolutely loving it. So who better to ask about Edward I and Eleanor of Castile than Anna Belfrage? So hello, Anna, and welcome to the podcast. That was a fantastic introduction. Thank you very much. And I'm very happy to be with you today. Um, very honoured, actually. Um, and that you want to know what I think about Edward I, given that he's a very English king and I'm a very Swedish person. It makes it even more fun, I think. I forget you're Swedish. Yeah. So do I, often. You, your English is so perfect. I forget your Swedish. <laughs> Good morning, Anna. Hi there. Great to talk to you again. Likewise. I must confess, I'm only on the first book of the Castilian series, which I'm enjoying, his Castilian Hawk. But I'm I'm intrigued. It's a period I, I know a little bit about, but not a lot. And I'm intrigued to know what first attracted you to the reign of Edward I. Before I answer that, I have to say very much thanks to you that I have such a good grasp of what Ludlow looks like. You, you used to do all these things about walking around there. So I, <laughs> I had sort of used your information to build myself a picture of Ludlow before I went there. So thank you very much for that. No problem. And <laughs> um, what attacked me to the reign of Edward I? Well, his Castilian hawk was essentially about the invasion of Wales. That is what I wanted to write about. And the divided loyalties that recently must have arisen due to this. And that happened in Edward's reign. So he sort of came with a story. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I'd heard of him, of course, uh, obviously, before. I find him an interesting mix of hard and brutal and soft and fluffy. And uh, not very many medieval kings come across as having any kind of fluffy sides. But I do think Edward did. Yeah, I mean, he has a, a reputation as a, as a hard and unscrupulous ruler. So far, I've not come across too much in the first book. Of his fluffy side. <laughs> How did that manifest itself? I think his fluffy side manifests itself in the way he cares for his wife, the way he sort of, when she's pregnant, the way he lights candles for her health, the way he sort of takes the time out to visit her uh, when she's expecting what is going to be Edward II and all that. I, I think I think there was a fluffiness to him when it came to his wife, as long as she understood the rules, which were that she was his wife, full stop. And... She probably was okay with that. I, th I find him really fascinating. Yes, he was absolutely harsh. But you also must remember where he was coming from. This is a man who, as a prince, 
saw the entire kingdom shaken to the foundations by the rebellion led by Simon de Montfort. And I think things were further complicated by the fact that Edward apparently admired de Montfort quite a lot. And I also think that Edward, in Edward's opinion, all of this happened due to his weak father, Henry III. And I believe that Edward promised himself very early on to be a very different king than Henry had been. And this meant being pretty ruthless at times. Quite similar to his grandson, Edward III, who I think made himself a similar promise when he became king, that he was no way going to repeat the mistakes of his father, Edward II. So the lacking capabilities of the father had a very strong influence on who Edward became as a king. I totally agree, Anna. And I think um, a lot of people overlook Edward's experiences under de Montfort um, and the Battle of Lewis and the Battle of Evesham and his imprisonment by de Montfort. I think people often overlook all that and just see him as the the king Mm. and this is who he is rather than looking at what made him that way. And I think a lot of what made him that way was his experiences having initially backed de Montfort and feeling that de Montfort was in the right and then seeing basically Mm. his father almost dethroned and just a puppet under de Montfort and he swore he'd never be that and you can understand where he was coming from with that. Yeah and I think also in the case of Henry III of course he was very uncomfortable being de Montfort's puppet but Henry III was ultimately what he was was a survivor and for him the most efficient way of surviving had always been to go along with things because that way he kept himself alive and 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 this is probably not something that necessarily Edward admired him for what i think is indicative about how Edward decided to rule things is that while he had excellent and trusted advisors like for example Robert Burnell the Bishop of Bath and Wells and whom he obviously listened to to a large extent he was a top dog and he made the final call Yes, he was surrounded by councillors, and yes, he had to call together Parliament to get taxes through. But I get the feeling that in many ways he was very lonely. At, and, and I think obviously when you are at the top, it can be quite lonely. I also think he made a very conscious decision to never involve his capable, intelligent, intelligent wife in the actual ruling. Because he had seen firsthand how his capable and intelligent and very strong-willed mother, Eleanor of Provence, had controlled his father. Right, So he set out a path for himself that was not necessarily the easy path. But it was a path that was going to prove very, very successful for him, not so successful to the people he trod down into the earth along the way. Do you think there's an element of uh, of genetics in this? I mean, when I think of Henry II and John, I don't think fluffy, really. I yeah, maybe. But John, I think, is the, the product of a very odd upbringing torn in two by his parents, right? Or at least to some extent. But And also to feeling that he was never good enough for his mother, which I don't think he ever was. But... I think Edward I, he was fortunate in that his parents actually gave him some kind of stable environment. But I also think he grew up in an environment and in a time where it was evident that the king had rights that nobody else did and the king had powers that nobody else did. And while there were stopgaps in place since the Magna Carta and while there were, you know, and while there were judicial systems that to some extent also could protect people against the king, Ultimately, the king did have the power to to decide what was going to happen to a lot of people, right? And just the fact that it was a feudal society meant meant that, and this, of course, was one of the big battles that Edward ended up in. That he tried to sort of he he tried to recall land grants from all of his various nobles and barons because he needed to he needed to sort of improve his liquidity status. He needed more he needed more cash and more money. And what he did was that everyone who had grants that they held without documentation to prove it, he was going to reclaim for the 
for the crown. This, of course, led to major upheaval among all his barons who felt that, you know, they were being screwed over by the king, which they were because they'd had these lands for generations in some cases, but they couldn't produce the document because at one point in time, maybe it didn't even require a document. Yeah, that's when John de Warren produced his sword and said that he held the lands by the sword because his ancestors took them at the Norman Conquest. <laughs> exactly. But it also shows that ultimately, as a medieval king, he could actually do that. Yeah, he had opposition and he was smart enough to realise that he, he didn't want another rebellion on his hands because the, the memory of the Montfort cast a long, long shadow. But he actually, the fact that he could even attempt it is an indication of how how certain he was of his own prerogatives. And I think that is what also means that we think he comes across as very harsh. I think his treatment of, of David of uh, David Griffith's sons is, is awful. Uh, and I think locking in a six-year-old boy or seven, as the youngest was at the time, is and also actually locking him in with the intention of never, ever letting him go is very difficult for a modern person to fully comprehend. But I also think it was difficult for his contemporaries because taking hostages was one thing. And I think this is one of the things I, I try to highlight in the in his Castilian Hawk that for Robert, the central character of his Castilian Hawk, this is a watershed moment when he realizes that the man he's followed loyally for decades has a very dark side to him. And it's very dangerous to end up on his on Edward the First dark side. <laughs> So let's go back to Eleanor and Edward. They are one of the greatest love stories of history. I wonder if they were a great love story at the time or if it's just because he had all these Eleanor crosses built um, for the funeral procession. Do you find inspiration from their love story? I think, I think, yeah, I do. Uh, I think this is a couple who, they spent their entire life together. I mean, she was barely 13 when, when they were married or thereabouts. Uh, and he was 15. Uh, and I think they were never apart. I mean, everywhere Edward went, there went Eleanor. Even when she was pregnant, even when she had just just had a baby, she went with him. He was always first and foremost the leading star in her life, uh, which at times can, for the modern woman can come across as a bit pathetic, perhaps. But I think that she was very dependent on him. And I think he needed her to, you know, give him the kind of fluffy side that Eric doesn't even see, but, you know. <laughs> and, and also I think they were bound together by the fact that they all of those children that they lost, I think that does, e either it breaks you apart or it ties you together. And in their case, it seems to tie them together because one could have thought that he would have said, no, nah, this isn't working. I mean, I'm going to have to set her aside and find myself a new wife who produces sons that don't die before the age of five, right? But that was apparently never a discussion, right? Together they saw the world. Uh, and when Eleanor's health starts failing around 1285 or so, there, there are clear indications of the amount of money spent by Edward to try and sort of turn things around. Like, and he, he, he buys, he stops and buys whimsical things like, like uh, ginger, ginger sweets for her because he knows that she likes them and he hopes that they will perhaps help her with whatever is ailing her because ginger, of course, was a fantastic thing even back then, right? Uh, and... So, so there are so many indications of that they were more or less joined at the hip, those two. And, and, and I don't think they would have been if they hadn't really enjoyed each other's company. Mm. And when she lies on her deathbed, it is him holding her hand. He sits there for three days, so he doesn't even leave her once. And once she's gone, well, yes, we have those crosses. But also for the first time in his reign, all royal business ground to a total halt for three days. That had never happened before. And I think this is when Edward went to pieces for a while and then very quickly 
to some extent recovered. And in one of my books, I have, in the last book, I have a scene where the grieving king is really upset because people are telling him he has to get married again. But he, and he does, because he only has one son, which is too few to really guarantee succession, right? And especially as Edward, the future Edward II, was pretty frail as a child, people were really nervous. But I don't think he wanted to remarry. I think his second marriage was quite happy as well, even if it was a spring and winter marriage. But I think for him, his heart went with Eleanor. And that might be me being very romantic. And I think maybe he was a bit more hard-nosed than that in the sense that he knew he had to take a new wife. But they'd known each other for so long. I mean, just the fact that here was a person with whom you didn't even have to explain what you were thinking because they knew that. I mean, that is always a fantastic thing, right? When you get to that point of level in your relationship. So yes, I do believe it was a, a, a love story. I think I, I tend to agree with you. I think they couldn't have been, like you say, they went everywhere together. They went on crusade together. He invaded Wales. She went with him. <laughs> it's like they were literally joined at the hip most of the time. She gave birth in a building site in Canavan to be, yeah. I mean, no comfortable retirement to some nice, nice, more modern castle. Oh, no. She was there among the scaffolding because she didn't want to be away from him. Yeah, and that's the thing. She must have chosen that. She must have chosen to go with him because she could have turned around and said, no, I'm eight months pregnant. I'm staying at home. <laughs> I, I don't think that thought that even so crossed her mind because this was a late pregnancy. She was, I mean, this was her, that we know of, 16th pregnancy. There'll probably be a bit more that we don't know of. Uh, and she was probably feeling quite frail already then. So maybe she also needed to know that he was close at hand should anything happen. It was quite unusual, though, wasn't it, in royal marriages in the Middle Ages? I mean, they didn't they didn't always spend a lot of time together necessarily. No, exactly. But I also think I mean, they were so young when they met. I, and and uh, obviously the marriage came across to, to, to make sure that the Gascony uh, was fully under English control. Uh, but I think that if you're 13 and 15 and you start by spending your first months together all alone in Gascony, you grow up together and growing up together is, is, is it also creates strong bonds. But I agree with you, most, most royal marriages and most actually high nobility marriages weren't like that. And I do think that people, their contemporaries were a bit surprised by the fact that wherever he went, she tagged along. We're going out for the night out with the boys, I'm bringing the wife. <laughs> <laughs> More or less, Yeah. But also the fact that, you know, that there's no known, I mean, he, he isn't known to have had any illegitimate children uh, during his the years he was married to her, right? So he seems to have held himself to one woman and maybe because she was always there, he didn't feel the need to. So what was the most difficult aspect of writing with Edward I and Eleanor of Castile as your two main historical characters? Well, it's because I have to walk the tightrope between known facts and what we don't know. I mean, I have I have painted Eleanor as being very proud of her lineage, and she's a bit stuck up even. And she was also very well educated, pious, and and a woman obviously marked by the fact that she that she buried so many children. So I created a woman who's fiercely loyal to her husband without being totally blind to his faults because she was too intelligent not to see them. And and I think this is of course one of the things when he does lock away. Uh, young Owen and young Llewellyn she she's worried by his lack of compassion she would never say anything because it's his decision and because he's the king and she's just the consort queen uh, but she is worried about his soul and, and that is of course why when she starts suspecting there may be another prince sitting as yet not under lock and key she doesn't dare to tell him because she's worried that that will actually tip the scales for permanence 
eternal hellfires for a man she loves very much, right? So she goes all ruthless herself. And you must remember, Eleanor was born into a warrior family. Her father, San Fernando, was one of the big reconquistadores and, and made huge headway against the Moors, as did her older brothers. All of her bro- brothers had been fighting since they were, you know, not knee-high, but close to. And she'd been raised to understand the need for war, for quick punitive actions. She, she'd also been raised to understand the risk of being too lenient with a defeated enemy. And, and yes, she was also there when the Montfort's rebellion happened, right? She was also one of the people who ended up imprisoned by the Montfort. So I think she also knew that sometimes you just have to get rid of the potential for future rebellion and you'd have to do it ruthlessly, even if she didn't necessarily like it, right? So um, she came from a big family with very many siblings, and I think what really cost her a lot was that she was fully aware that her main duty was providing an heir and a spare, and she, that was not something she actually managed to do. But I don't think Edward blamed her for it. I, I hope he didn't. So she's a very nice, complicated character to write, and, and we don't really know enough about her to be able to say, no, this is a depiction that is wrong. Or this is. I mean, I can do a lot of... I can, I can, I can portray her as I like within the framework of what we do now. We know she had business acumen because she was a very successful businesswoman on the side. Uh, we know she was very, very devout and very well-educated. But, uh, and we know that she was obviously always at Edward's side, right? But within those remits, I can sort of create her to be more or less what I need her to be, which is always fun. I do like your Eleanor. She is tough, but she's also, there's a lot of heart in her as well, right? And, and I hope that comes across. She she will never take sides against her husband, never. Uh, but that doesn't mean that she doesn't understand why other people might do so. They both seem to be very pragmatic characters. Yes. They're realists. I think so, yes. And I think both of them would have made excellent multinational leaders, you know, multinational company CEOs, right? They would, they would, have, they yeah. would have winged that deciding this and that and being horribly ruthless when it came to protecting their earnings and their bottom line. <laughs> I, I, I think they are. They, they, that is probably one of the things they have in common, a, a, a gigantic streak of pragmatism. And yeah. which was also, I think, reinforced by the Montfort's Rebellion, that, you know, you couldn't really count on, on loyalties inspired by the fact that you were a king, because obviously that didn't work. So you had to make sure that you built your loyalty base based on other things, preferably financial ties, because they tend to be very strong when it comes to the crunch, right? Yes, I think that was Sarah Cockrell's argument in her book on Eleanor of Castile, wasn't it? That her business acumen all arose from the feeling of not being able to control life herself when she was imprisoned by de Montfort so, and not having access yeah. to money. So she was determined that that wasn't going to happen to her again. And I can understand that. <laughs> Which is also why she acts the way she does against Noor, right? Or against Noor's mother, because she, she needs to have some kind of income that is her own that nobody knows about, right? And I, and I, and I can, I can totally understand that. I also think she was really scared that something was going to happen to Edward. And where would she be then? Mm. If, if he had died uh, during the war with the Montfort or during his imprisonment, where would that have left her? So I think, I think all in all, she, she, she spent a couple of years there probably biting her nails down to the quick. Uh, and that was not something that she wanted ever to repeat. I think when you when you think about how affected people were after, say, the Second World War and the next generation or so, nobody could possibly forget the Second World War. And often when we look at historical characters, we don't, as you said, we don't put them in that historical context of what has 
just happened. And as you say, for Edward, it, the de Montfort rebellion was, that was very recent history. Yeah and very appropriate for him to bear in mind. And not, not just him. Either. No, no, absolutely. And I think, for example, the reason why so many of the marcher lords were more than happy to participate in the invasion of Wales, even despite having blood ties into Wales, was that uh, Llewellyn uh, at Griffith had supported the Montfort and had, at the Montfort's suggestion or orders, raided a lot of the marcher lands and burned their castles and stuff like that to sort of create more upheaval, right? And and that was not something that they were willing to forgive because he had turned on them, now they were going to turn on him, right? Of course, the marcher lords were of the opinion that they were the best things in sliced bread. <laughs> but I think for them, the invasion of Wales, which per definition brought them under stricter control of the crown because they were no longer border defenders, and that could in itself have been sort of a negative thing for their power base, was something that they happily helped out with because of the fact that they felt that Llewellyn had sort of grown too big for his boots and needed to be taken down a notch or two. And I, it's interesting that a common thing that comes across is Dafford seems to have been genuinely disliked by everyone. <laughs> And, and of course, that, that might happen when you betray first one and then the other, right? But but nobody seems to really have had much left over for him, right? He, but they give him credit for dying bravely. That's nice. He, 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 he didn't squeal like a pig when he was hung, drawn and quartered in Shrewsbury. Otherwise, nobody seems to like him at all. Yeah. A lot of what we've talked about so far is that that meeting of the, the modern mind and modern sensibilities with what was normal in the medieval period girls marrying very young, Edward wanted to conquer Wales, and, and all sorts of things of that sort. Now, as an author, what line do you walk on on those sorts of issues when all of your readers are living in 21st century? Do you try and whitewash it a bit? Or do you use the author's notes at the end to explain something? I, I use my author, author's note, yes. But I am of the opinion that one should not whitewash because it is important to create, to, to present history as it was, right? Many years ago, I read uh, Kate Quinn wrote an excellent book about uh, the Borgia Pope and his relationship with a 40 years younger Julia. She had specifically the problems of having a barely pubescent child. Well, no, she was 16 or 17 with having a relationship with a 60 year old man. Right. And how to describe that without having everyone sort of rise up and, and with pitchforks in hands. <laughs> I think. You just have to describe it for what it was. I think, for example, the, the fact that Edward wanted to, to, to expand his his kingdom into Wales was because he wanted to, to sort of make it more secure. And then when we go to Scotland, then I think it was a question of wanting just to expand it, right? Because he felt that why shouldn't he control the entire island? And I don't think it is right to whitewash. I think sometimes this means that sometimes my characters say hopeful things. Like in my latest book about Robert Edward, sort of in passing comments about all the money he has, he has extorted from his Gascon Jews. I mean, he squeezed them out of 20,000 marks or something like that because he needed it. And to us, that sounds absolutely horrible, right? But to medieval ruler, the only reason one had Jews living in your kingdom was to be able to squeeze them out of the money when you needed it. Uh, yeah. And ultimately, of course, all that squeezing impoverished the Jews. So when uh, Edward finally had them expelled from England in 1290, and this actually, as a consequence, consequence of negotiating with parliament he wanted a tax hike and parliament said they wouldn't give it to him unless he expelled the jews uh, but when they left everything that they left behind fell to edward as the king but there was very little to sort of little left of value that 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 he could take over because 
they had been impoverished through repeated, uh, you know, pats on the back from the man supposedly protecting me and the king saying, oh, hello, I need more money, fix it. And to us, of course, this is this is this is a horrible way of acting, right? But but it's like when you when I in my other book when I write about the, the tensions between the Moors and 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 the and the Jews and and the Christians in Spain, medieval Spain. I mean, you can't shy away from the fact that religion caused a lot of division. And we sometimes we hold up the Moorish Empire as being some kind of a different world where everybody was allowed to live. Yes, you were allowed to live as a Christian in Moorish Spain. But you had to wear a big bloom thingy, a, a big mark around your neck to show everyone that you were Christian, right? So, and and we I, we need to understand that in the past, being different was not good. Full stop. Yeah. And maybe because we were more insular. I mean, we had most people had not seen much beyond their own village or their own manners. I mean, in an insular environment, I think we tend to become more narrow-minded. A stranger in any community in that period is regarded with suspicion, not interest. Oh, yeah, I, I absolutely. And I've had some reviews. I mean, when, when I wrote the Graham saga, there are sequences where women are the unfortunate victims of violence. Uh, and there was someone who wrote it. I just couldn't understand why the author had to write about violence against women. Well, sorry, because it was prevalent. I mean, women had no rights. They were considered chattel. And if a husband wanted to wail into his woman because, because she felt that she'd done something wrong, well, he could. And nobody could intercede. And, it's, and I'm sorry to tell you this, but that was the way it was, right? Uh, and some people don't want to hear that, that those parts of history. Well, in that case, I think they should read someone else. Recently, you know, I had a discussion about consummation of marriage. In general, the church did not actually recommend that you hold off. I mean, Margaret Beaufort, she was 12, I think, when she had her son, right? That was way too early. Yeah, she was 12 when she got married and 13 when she gave birth. Well, Eleanor Castile was similar. She was 13, I think, when she got pregnant. And um, her first child that died was when she was 14, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the, the girl that was born in, in Gascony, yes, which we think she gave birth to, but, but we don't really... Uh, but at least that was two teenagers playing around. I somehow don't think Edmund Tudor and Margaret Buford were kind of playing around to the same extent. But once again, it happened. And, 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 and I think there were many people at the time who would say, oh, my God, that was very quick to sort of bed your 12-year-old, 12-year-old bride. But that was the extent of the, the opprobrium, right? Yeah, I, I've, had, uh, I've had similar comments. You won't be surprised to hear. I've had similar comments about uh, violence, particularly to women. And again, people say, well, why do you have to, why do you have to include so much of that? And, and my, as you said, my, my approach is that if I cut that out, I'm not presenting things as they were. I'm presenting them as some 21st century minds would like to imagine they were, which is not what I'm about. What they go through, of course, you twisted the story a bit because you need to have a really good story. But at the same time, none of what they live through is implausible, which is important to understand because that was the way life could be if, if for people in a, very, in, in, a, in a period that was, you know, tainted by upheaval, right? So, so it's, and I agree with you. I think it's important to present things as they were, because otherwise I think we end up with a sort of a, a rosy sheen to history, which history does not deserve. I, I would love to time travel, but only if I had a return ticket. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so um, just look, thinking about your your central characters, we have another Eleanor who is Nor. How did you how did you come up with her? And do you see anything of yourself in Nor? 
you identify with her at all? Now, Nora is, is, is probably the female character that is most different from myself. If I look, for example, at the female character in the Graham saga, Alex, she, she, she does have... My daughter says, I can't read this. I, say, I can't read this, but keep on seeing you. I said, but she's... Well, she says, it's a matter of opinion. <laughs> Although I don't have a black belt in karate. But Nora, I think, uh, the reason why Nora appears as she does is because I, I, I wanted the fact that she's so vulnerable that she can't even decide what's going to happen to her, right? Her brother is dead. Her father is dead. Both of them under suspicious circumstances. And the king just says, oh, going ahead and marry this guy who apparently also is the one who killed her father and brother, right? Uh, and so he is being rewarded with her for having been a loyal servant to Edward, not necessarily for having killed her father and brother, but for her, it must have felt that way, at least initially. His initial behavior doesn't, doesn't paint him in glory either, does it? So, but, but, but I, th I think so. So I don't identify with Nor. I, I do actually, to some extent, identify with Robert a bit, because I think Robert is one of those people whom I think have always existed through, through, through the world, people who are loyal and dogged and do their best to, to fulfill expectations as well as they can who now and then sort of, you know, come to a halt and start thinking about what they're doing and whether it actually squares entirely with their own conscience. And, and those kind of people, I think, are the ones that we need to make changes in a world that would otherwise be bound for hell in a handbasket. I wanted to hit him in the first book, though, with his girlfriend on one side and his poor wife on the other. I really wanted to hit him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. To give him his credit, I mean, he's... He has never expected to be married. I mean, he, he never had the expectation of ending up with a manor at all, right? And, and I don't think really he knows how to handle the situation, but he really behaves awfully. But um, I think he grows on you because he is fast and he's loyal. And I think also he's a man who, who does take a big risk when he decides to support Noor in what she has done. I also think he's a man who, he was given this marriage, but there wasn't, there was no courting beforehand sort of thing. It was like, you're marrying this woman and that's that. And it's like the getting used to the idea of marriage came afterwards. So you can understand, you can appreciate how hard it was for both of them because suddenly they were thrust together as a couple and they never even met. They didn't know each other. He'd killed her dad, which kind of made things easy. <laughs> I, don't th I don't think it did. And I think, I, I think she is young. Uh, I mean, she's much younger than she, than he is, even if she at least is 16. But she's young. Ultimately, she's lived her environment in a safe place without having seen what he has seen. And I think that is what attracts him to Edith, his mistress, that she has experienced what he has experienced. He doesn't need to explain to her because she's been, she's lived it, right? And I think that is also what tied Edward and Eleanor so well together, that they didn't need to explain things to each other because they'd experience them together. Yeah, they understand each other. Yes, I like Robert, I must admit. I, I find him a very well-rounded character as well. So I think he's 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 my favourite character in the in the whole thing. So your books are built on certainly the Castilian saga, the central relationship of this young fictional couple who just been thrown together in marriage and their life at court and separating their life at court from their life at home. Um, does having fictional characters as your leading protagonist give you more freedom? Oh, yeah, of course it does. I mean, I can invent their timeline, allowing it to weave itself around a non-sequence of real events. You know, like when in the third book, Robert spends months in Wales in 1287 to suppress a rebellion. So I use those facts that we know about that to sort of 
calibrate what happens to him during the time during the time he is in Wales. But it is it is I use the real events as a background to the fictional narrative, or maybe maybe it would be more correct to say I use them as building blocks. I mean, they're the pillars that sort of carry my fictional story, and and, and then as long as I am true to the building blocks, as long as the pillars remain unchanged, I can allow my fictional story to spin it. That is also why I like real life historical characters about whom we know very little in his Castilian Hawk, for example, Elizabeth the Ferris, who was the wife of uh, Daffod at Griffith, is given more room because, frankly, we don't really know what happened to her after her children were so brutally taken from her and she was never allowed to see them again. Uh, we, we, there is a notation that she probably died in 1287 somewhere in Wales. Uh, and I like using the fact that we don't know enough about her gives me leeway in how I represent her, right? So I re- represent her as a more, more or less almost crazed leading mother. Uh, and I think he mm. would be in that situation. Um, but that I think is fun. It's, it's fun when you in, in my the King's Greatest Enemy books, the ones about Edward II, I have used uh, Edward's younger brother, Thomas, as one of those characters whom we know relatively little about. So I can flesh him out and use him as I need him to sort of carry the story forward. And I, I enjoy doing that. So do you have a favourite character? In this, in, in these specific books? In these books and in all your series altogether. Is there one personal favourite? I think my favourite character would still be Alex uh, Graham. I follow her through so many years of her life. So she becomes, she's essentially like, you know, a sister or a best best friend, right? She know I know everything about her. Uh, or she, she disagrees. In principle, I know everything about her. But and, and many times I fall in love with little characters who don't really feel much of a role beyond being a cameo. Like in, in the Castilian series, I'm rather fond of my character, Friar Robert, who is one of those bellicose friars that you sort of spend most of his life trying to kill other people while being religious. A very interesting conundrum, right? So, mm-hmm. but I would say Alex, and then I think I'm very fond of Robert. Uh, but my, but Adam de Gironde is probably the one I sort of go, ooh. Yeah, I like Adam. I like that series. I like the um, King's Greatest Enemy series. I think they were the first books of yours I read, so they've got a special place for me. But I have taken to Noor and Robert as well. Well, Adam's sweet. <laughs> So if they made a TV series of Her Castilian Heart, who do you imagine playing Robert and Noah? And who would play Edward and Eleanor? I think actually Edward I is an easy one. I think Richard Armitage would make an excellent Edward. Yes. So, so yes, him is definitely. easy. Uh, and Robert, I was thinking Ben Barnes. He was in an episode called Shadow and Bone, Shadow and Ash. And I think he has a sort of a nicely brooding dark exterior that would sort of go well with mm-hmm. the somewhat brooding Robert at times. And then there's a young English actress called Daisy Edward Jones who would make a very, very pretty Noor. Um, I think she's pretty, but she's also quite round and there are no actresses that are round. You can't really be an actress and be too round, I think, which is, which is a bit unfortunate. But <laughs> I have absolutely no idea who would play, play Eleanor. I mean, I would love to see someone like, had she been a bit younger, I would say uh, Helen Mirren, right? But she is too old for the role. But she she would she would have she has a gravitas that is required to sort of fill the role with presence uh, while still being able to be very lighthearted at times. But I can't really think of anyone who play Eleanor. Do you have any idea? No, I think Ellen is one of those. She's so unique in history that it would be really hard to find someone who could actually play 
the whole element. I was thinking as you were talking about that, and we've we've always obviously asked this question before of other people, but perhaps it's because I'm old. But uh, the, the actresses I think of, uh, you mentioned Helen Mirren, who is one I would I would have mentioned, but also uh, Vanessa Redgrave. Where are the where are the modern equivalents of these of these actresses, Glenda Jackson? I mean, who who have some gravitas, you know? Maybe you have to be older to have gravitas. Sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think maybe you do. But but I, I was actually looking at women who were in the forties and in the fifties and trying to sort of think about and 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 it's difficult to find someone who who can carry. The, I mean, obviously, a casting director would find them easily because they would know where to yes. look. And I think also sometimes. You need to look outside the more recognized names to find someone who would just fill the, those shoes really well, right? Um, but but it, it was difficult to come up with the, the one that was easiest. I said was Edward because uh, I think Richard would Richard Armitage would have made an excellent Edward. <laughs> so he's good. I can be. I'm sure he'll be up <laughs> Let's for. Let's be honest. <laughs> can we keep the discussion at a higher level, please, ladies? <laughs> Oh yeah, absolutely, I, and I and I, th- I think he would, and also because it's 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 a characterization that requires that you balance between being extremely cold at times while adding a nuance of caring now and then, right? And that that requires that you you I mean he did that in the Hobbit when he was that dwarf leader, very very ruthless, but at the same time is obviously cares for his people. I was thinking for any of our any new readers of your books where is the castilian series up to there are three books are there any more there are three books now and there's going to be a fourth book that is going hopefully to come out later this year i haven't started with it yet because i'm working on another book uh so the idea is i have most of the story now pat that i know what historical event is going to circle about it's going to be about madoga Llewellyn's rebellion in 1294 which actually almost had I mean, he had the king cornered there for a little while, right? And and uh, which Edward would not appreciate much. Um, but but um, so that and then that will be the last book in the series because I'm thinking of going back and writing a fifth book about Adam and which is called the Road to Santiago, where they are sent off first of all to find Edward the Third's pesky father, Edward the Second, who's becoming a bit too visible in France. <laughs> And, and secondly, to sort of do a general take on the territories in France and see how easy will it be for Edward to invade them and take the French crown. And they do that under the guise of being pilgrims going to Santiago. So I think that could be a fun book to write. And also because I give Edward, ex-Edward II, a lot of room, and he's quite a fun character. He's, he's really happy not to be the king anymore. He can do whatever suits him, right? And he doesn't, he, he, he sort of expects his son to bankroll him. But other than that, he's a happy, 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 you know, happy as a coughing clover because <laughs> he can now lead life the way he wants to do it without having to consider pesky things like taxes and rebelling people. Fun loving Edward II. I can't wait. <laughs> I'm just thinking this fun, happy go lucky Edward II. I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> I think he had a lot of very nice qualities. I think as a man, I think he was much nicer than his father. And in many ways, the reason why Edward III is as likable as he is at times. But but um, I think he was extremely inept as a king. 
and of course he didn't really have a choice did he so i mean i i have decided that i i believe the people there are a couple of historians who say that he probably didn't die in, in 1327 i'm going with them because i think he needs a longer lease on life to do some fun stuff <laughs> uh, and at present he is he has discovered that he can actually finance himself quite well by some discreet highway robbery uh, and then also he has discovered he has a fantastic penchant for ending up in long discussions with religious people because that is, he was really well educated when it comes to religion. And that worries his companion because he thinks, he's, you know, he's, 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 that is why people are saying he's visible because there's this person who speaks with obvious knowledge about things he should no, no common person should know about. But we'll see where that ends up. I think Adam is going to be a bit frustrated with dear Edward. It sounds like he's going to have his work cut out. <laughs> Well, thank you very much, Anna. It's been absolutely fabulous talking with you. And I think we could carry on for another hour, except I doubt everybody would want to listen to a two-hour-long podcast. <laughs> thank you very much for inviting me. I was so honoured, really honoured. And I, I hope I shed some light on what I think about Edward I. Actually, if I were to have people over for, you know, people who, who what historical people would you invite over for dinner? I would invite Edward. And then I would serve him a nice chocolate cake, which I think would put him in an absolutely mellow <laughs> mood before I started asking him about the Welsh princes. And why all the cages? <laughs> yes. It's awful, isn't it? The fact that he actually had these cages constructed. And he actually did construct a cage for, uh, for the youngest boy. When he mm. was old enough, they put him in a cage as well. And he tried to do it with Robert the Bruce's daughter as well. Um, she was only eight or nine at the time, but her, his barons basically told him, you're not doing that. You can't do that. She's a girl. <laughs> She's a child. So he didn't do it. And they just um, sent her to um, nunnery. He did hang some women from cages from the from the battlements of Berwick, didn't he? Yeah, Bruce's sister and um, Isabel Buchan, the woman who'd crowned So Bruce. this, of course, is where... But this is after Eleanor died, you see, and I, I am of the firm opinion that when Eleanor died, the fluffy part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, either the fluffy part or the think about this before you do it person talking in his ear at night. <laughs> I think it would be difficult to hang a woman from uh, uh, in a cage from the walls and look at your own wife and consider the fact that someone might do the same to her should they catch her. Yes. It was Really nice talking to you. I do hope that, that's, that I'm really sorry, Derek, that we didn't see each other in Durham. I, I probably need to up my glasses. No, I, I, it's probably my fault. It usually is. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, lovely to talk to you. And uh, hopefully it won't be too long before we, we meet up again. No, that would be really nice. You take care. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye, Anna. Thank, Thank you. you. Join us next time when we look at the life and career of Edward the Elder the son of Alfred the Great, because both Derek and I were talking about who he was and neither of us know very much. So we're going off to research and we'll be back next time with what we know. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Sharon Bennett Connolly. And I'm Derek Burks. And we look forward to giving you another podcast in the near future.